0: Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, we're going to read verses 9 through 13. Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1525. 1525. Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Thus ends our reading of God's holy word. May all who hear it understand the glory of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was in 2004 that Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, came to theaters. And though this movie had a relatively low budget, it ended up grossing well over $600 million worldwide. But with this movie also came a lot of controversy. Described as too violent, critics either loved it or they they hated it. But it wasn't just that, that it was violent, it, it was that the violence was inflicted upon one man for pretty much the length of the movie. Uh, I guess people can handle, handle hundreds of people dying quickly, but they cannot handle one person dying slowly. Now at the time, I, I was working in student ministry on the campus of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and in response to this movie, the, the university, they set up this panel discussion made up of different faith leaders from within the community to, to debate this controversy. And on this panel, there was this one Jewish scholar who, who, who just couldn't understand the appeal that Christians had to this film. I don't remember her precise words, but I I think that she thought that that anyone who enjoyed this movie either had to be a sadist or a masochist. Uh, To her, there was really no redeeming qualities to this film. It was just glorified violence. But for those who understood the purpose behind that violence, this movie, the, The Passion of the Christ... It highlights the hidden beauty that Jesus displayed in his suffering. Just last week, we were granted a glimpse into the glory of our Lord. As Jesus took Peter, James, and John up that high mountain where he was transfigured before their very eyes. These men were given a a preview, if you will, of of the victory of Christ and the breaking in of of God's kingdom. But it wasn't just them who who were on that mountain, for they they were joined by two others, Moses and Elijah. Representing both the law and and the prophets, these men were bearing witness to Jesus as the Messiah. Peter, feeling the the gravity of the moment, suggested that uh, we should build three tents, three tabernacles, if you will. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Still having his mind on the things of men, Peter had already forgotten about Christ's plan to to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the, the religious leaders there. Instead, he he desired to see the kingdom come through the the might and the power of this Shekinah glory that they were witnessing. But before Peter could finish his thoughts, he was interrupted as the father spoke. A bright cloud descended upon that mountain, and and a voice declared the uniqueness of, of Jesus with these words, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased." Listen to him. Well, this encounter, as as Jeff demonstrated with our children earlier today, it it left these three disciples on their knees with their faces to the ground. They were terrified, unable to stand. But Jesus came to them and he he touched them. He, He spoke words of courage lifting their fears, and he allowed them to stand once more. And when they looked up, what did they see? They only saw Jesus. Having once again veiled his glory, he he became that perfect mediator between God and man. And and though these men had had seen both the glory and, and the victory of the transfiguration... That moment was, was now gone, and the cross of Christ still loomed before them. Which brings us to our passage for today, as we see Jesus and these, these disciples of his, these three men, journey back down that mountain and rejoin the rest of the world. Their, their mountaintop experience was now behind them, and they had to face the grim realities of a fallen creation. Look at, look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Have you ever been witness to something so amazing, so awe-inspiring that, that afterwards you just had to tell someone? In fact, you had to tell everyone? Perhaps it was a great concert that you went to or some type of sporting event or maybe uh, just just something out of the blue that, that you just happened to be present to witness. I was at the, the, the Rose Bowl in 1998 and I got to witness my Michigan Wolverines take down Washington State and win the national championship. For me, it was, it was a euphoric moment which one in which that I had to share with everyone. Told all my friends about it, told my parents, my sister, uh, everyone I knew. I just couldn't keep silent. And even today, you know, I can't help but brag about that team and, and what I had seen 22 years ago. Think about that. A football game. It's just a football game. Now imagine what it was like for these three men after what they had witnessed. They were given a glimpse of this kingdom glory. They saw the magnificence of the king of kings as his radiant light shone around them. They saw the Shekinah glory of the father. They heard his thundering voice from above. And not to mention, even Moses and Elijah were there. I mean, this... This is the ultimate mountaintop experience. And yet now they're being told to keep silent. I can only imagine how frustrating this must have been for these men. Don't tell anyone what we've seen. Seriously? But why? Why would Jesus instruct them to be quiet? The answer to that question lies in the words that follow until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. These men would have to wait for the cross and for the, for the empty tomb before they could speak of Christ's glory. For the story was incomplete as Jesus had more to accomplish. And as great and, and as significant as the transfiguration was, the sign of Jonah would be even greater. You see, the the, the good news of the kingdom must include the message of the cross and the resurrection. For whether these men knew it or not, there was a greater glory that was still still in store for them. A glory that would be hidden in suffering. But if they couldn't tell anyone then they would use these last moments that they had alone with Jesus to to ask him a question, to ask him about what they had just witnessed. Look at verse 10 and see what that question is. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, what is this question? And what does it have to do with what they had just witnessed? Implicit in, in their questioning is the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, this was something that they, they had already known, but, but because Peter had made that good confession. But, but for them, the, the, the transfiguration confirmed what they had already believed. It, it made their faith become sight. And yet, at the same time, they were having a hard time with this appearance of Elijah. And so they were asking, you know, why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? What they were referring to was what was a commonly known prophecy. The very one that we read earlier in Malachi chapter 4. Look at it again. Surely the, the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It was commonly understood that before the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom, before that great and dreadful day, that Elijah would appear and restore order. These disciples now knew for certain that, that Jesus was this Messiah, but to them, the restored order had yet to come. So given the appearance of Elijah upon that mountain, the, the the question makes perfect sense. It's as if they were saying, you know, you know Jesus, we were taught one way. But it seems here that the, the, the order of things is off. Wasn't Elijah supposed to come before you? Was this short visit it? And if it was, does it, doesn't he need to first restore all things? Doesn't he need to bring about the justice of God to Israel? Shouldn't he lead us into that, that, that perfect state of worship? And furthermore, if that is the case, how then could you as the Messiah suffer in such a setting? How could you be killed? For Peter, James, and John, this, this didn't make any sense. They were, they were still trying to find that, that, that framework in which, which the Messiah would suffer and die. How, how could someone so glorious be killed? And, and this is what, what had spurred their question on. Even, even today, it is, it is difficult to fathom why this king of kings needed to die on the cross. I mean, couldn't, couldn't God just forgive us our sins? Without making his son suffer? Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. It it fails to account for God's justice. To offer forgiveness without atonement would diminish the holiness of God. And all that would be left would be a tainted glory. Just as these disciples were seeking the, the reason for Christ's mission, we too, we need to understand the purpose of the cross. For the, the glory of God will be, will be hidden from our eyes unless we comprehend the suffering of Jesus. Just as we need to understand and find answers, so too did these disciples. Let's, let's see how Jesus responded to their question. Look at, look at the end of our passage at verses 13, 11 through 13. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. It was just a chapter earlier that, that Jesus had asked these same disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? In other words, those, those who have not been following me, those who are not my disciples, who do they say I am? And if you remember, one of the answers that the disciples gave was Elijah. And to a degree, this, this made perfect sense. For, for the timing was ripe concerning the coming of the Messiah, but Elijah must come first. And so the people of that day were in a very real sense looking for Elijah. Even today, when, when, when Jews have their, their, their Seder meal, they will seat an extra seat, an empty seat in anticipation for Elijah's return. Now, were these people looking for the actual man as if Elijah could be reincarnated? Of course not. That's that's not what the Jews believed. Rather, they were looking for a prophet like Elijah, one who would who would take up his mantle and prepare the way for the Messiah. But but in their search, there were there were many who thought that the telltale signs of the Elijah would be in the miraculous, the, the spectacular. For the majority of the stories in the Old Testament concerning this prophet revolved around such things. For example, God had given to Elijah the authority to, to speak a drought into existence. And during that drought, he, he, he was then fed, fed at a brook by ravens. A short while later, he, he multiplied the flour and the oil for the, the widow in Zarephath. Later on, when, when that widow's son became ill and, and eventually died, it was Elijah that had resurrected the boy. There was even a time when, when he took, took on a role that Moses took and he parted the waters of the Jordan River. Now, when you look at these miracles and then you take a look at what Jesus was doing, it was no wonder that that many thought him to be the Elijah. But the calling of Elijah wasn't to perform miracles. Rather, he was called to speak judgment upon an unrepentant people. And it it is this point where many miss the boat. For the true spirit of Elijah rested upon John the Baptist, who didn't perform any miracles, but who did have this ministry of repentance. He he warned the people of, of the judgment that was to come, and that those who, who didn't produce fruit in keeping with repentance would be cut down and thrown into the fire. But more than that, John was the the very one who who paved the way for the Messiah's arrival. For his message wasn't one that the the Romans were the problem. No, his message was that we are the problem. For our our true bondage is a bondage to sin. And only a repentant heart that, that looks to God's mercy will find forgiveness from the Father. Suffice it to say, the message of John was the message of Jesus. Christ, he isn't concerned with with worldly politics. Rather, he is focused on on the condition of our eternal souls. You see, in the the world's eye, the mission of, of John the Baptist didn't look all that impressive. But in the eyes of Jesus... John did exactly what he was called to do. Look, look at that last verse in Malachi once again. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and, and strike the land with a curse. This notion of turning hearts is, is a language of Repentance. And the idea of fathers and children coming together is indicative of, of where true societal change must first take place. For it is in, in the family where the peace of God's kingdom, the, his, his shalom, begins. You see, in, in the mind of God, it is, it is the family that is the preeminent institution that he created. It ranks far above any governmental system. And so the the role of the Elijah was to proclaim a message of repentance that would either lead to a wholesale change among the people or to a hardening of hearts in which the curse of God would strike the land. In John the Baptist, we saw both. We saw those whose repentant hearts were, were looking for a Savior. And they would find that Savior in Jesus Christ. But we also saw men whose hearts were cold, men whose hearts refused to repent, men who liked their positions of of power more more than they liked the truth, men like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. Yes, the Elijah had come, and he was John the Baptist. But these men who had hardened their hearts, They failed to recognize him. And they did to him everything they wished. But not only did they fail to recognize the Elijah, but they would would also turn a blind eye to the Messiah. For Jesus said in the same way, the Son of Man was going to suffer at their hands. This brings us full circle to Christ's mission. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. For these disciples, Peter, James, and John, Jesus was expanding the, the, the small view that they had of Old Testament prophecy and the coming of the kingdom. You see, for them, the, the, the glory resided in the transfiguration. And while, yes, the glory was there, there was a greater glory that was yet to come. This is why Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had been raised from the dead. For for the majesty that they had witnessed on that mountain, it would pale in comparison to the majesty that would come with the cross. It was Martin Luther who said this about Jesus' suffering. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. When I was at that panel discussion where they were debating the, the film The Passion of the Christ, uh, they gave us some time at the end for audience participation. And so I, I stepped up to the mic and I had my question, uh, the content of which I, I don't remember today. But in response to my question, that, that Jewish scholar posed a question back at me. And, and she asked me, what is it that you find so appealing about this movie? I responded that that what she saw as horrific and, and brutal, I viewed as glorious and beautiful. Because it should have been me upon that cross and not my Lord. Listen, the... The world doesn't recognize such glory. It, it, it cannot. For the glory of the cross can only be seen through eyes of faith. But it is a greater glory than even the transfiguration for those who have repentant hearts. You see, the, the message of the transfiguration is that of a mighty God, one who brings terror to the sinner because of the judgment that is to come. But the message of the cross is a message that lifts that person up. For it is only through the mercy and the forgiveness that was purchased by the blood of Jesus that a person can be clean in God's sight. Do you see it? The the, the kingdom is more than just having control over some land. It is more than just having power. It is a reversal of the curse. It is the sun of of righteousness that rises with healing in its wings. It is the joy of those who, who go out leaping like calves who have been released from their stalls. It is captives who have been set free from their sins. It is the brokenness of this fallen creation being gently restored by the delicate touch of those nail-pierced hands. Do you see it? Such a glorious vision can only come about at the cross. The curse must be placed on Jesus, for he is the only one who can bear it. And... He is the only one who can defeat it. For true victory comes with the resurrection. Dear friends, it it is in the cross and in that empty tomb that a hidden glory is unveiled. But it can only be seen through eyes of faith. Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. For that is where the glory lies. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would give us eyes to see. See things that the world cannot see. Help us to understand the the glory of your Son. The glory in his suffering. That at the cross, your, your justice and your love is magnified. And that in that empty tomb resides everlasting life. May your Holy Spirit speak to us this day producing faith within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.